There's nothing sweet about cutting sugarcane by hand. You see the workers in a line just hacking away at the base of the sugarcane. And if you're hacking away at the ground all the time with a very sharp machete, the chance you're going to hit your leg is very high. Brazil is the world's largest producer of sugar, with plantations spread across the country. Around 700,000 people work in the industry. If you ever see a worker working in the sugarcane plantation, you see that he's bending down a lot. The work itself is absolutely backbreaking. It's like the definition of it, because it literally breaks your back. Many of Brazil's sugar plantations were originally built to be worked by slaves. And in some places, that continues today. In this episode, The Price of Sweetness, how a global effort to switch away from fossil fuels may be encouraging the use of slave labour on Brazil's sugarcane plantations. Welcome to Just Transition. This podcast is brought to you by Context, a platform powered by the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Just Transition is about the effort to make the planet cleaner and greener. And recognizing the need for support towards a just transition. Without leaving anyone behind. Just Transition. For affected people and communities. I'm your host, Iman Amrani. This podcast will look at how we are to ensure a just transition and what's at stake if it's ignored. There is so much that we can do to keep this from getting worse. Fabio Teixeira is understandably tired of some of the cliches about his country. Well, first of all, if you're looking at Brazil, outside of Brazil, people just think it's a huge forest. Fabio is Thomson Reuters Foundation's slavery and trafficking correspondent in Brazil. That means seeing a side of the country that outsiders miss. Brazil is an agricultural powerhouse. So you have to realize that Brazilian agriculture has ties to the rest of the world at large. And those ties to the rest of the world are closer than many of us realize. So when I do a story about workers being enslaved in Brazil, I'm not doing a story about, oh, poor people in a place far away that has nothing to do with you, which is a type of reporting that happens. Oh, it's so sad. No, because here in Brazil... Companies that are funded by other more advanced countries are connected to this in a big way. Those connections came home to Fabio when he met a man called José Cicero. What kind of guy was he like? He's a family guy and uh, he's already an old man by now. Not old, but uh, old enough for this business. Old enough for this business, meaning in his 50s. This meeting took place at José Cicero's house in the Brazilian state of Alagoas, one of the poorest states in the country, and a centre for sugarcane plantations. With cutting cane, I started with 14 years old, around that, 12 or 14 years old, around 1980 or 79. The most I earned was when I cut 12 to 14 tonnes of sugarcane per week. I was a fast worker, around 500 reais per week. That's about 95 US dollars a week. And that was the most he earned. His house is like better conditioned than most of the houses that I've seen during my visits. The 
walls were actually painted. It had doors. The roof was in good condition. Not the usual in these cases. Having doors and painted walls can be a sign of relative success in this community. Not something everyone can expect. But Jose has definitely not had it easy. He remembers the first time he experienced the condition that Alagoa sugarcane workers call kangaroo. Yes, that one time I had to stop because I thought my heart would explode. It was around two in the afternoon. I hadn't had lunch yet. That time was bad for me. I thought I would die. Yes, I, I thought I would die. So what happens is that when a worker is cutting sugarcane, he's doing that under the sun. They basically work about 12 hours, 10 hours a day working. They are losing a lot of water. They are losing a lot of minerals. So what they have is an imbalance that can start to cause cramps all over the body. Dehydration, lack of electrolytes. These cramps happen in a way that they're almost like seizures. and The person falls down and they can't get up and they become completely unable to do anything. All over, all over. The worst cramp I had was on the neck. It went the side of the face. Then I got on this side here. Then I thought I would die. I was throwing up. I spent three days without working. Basically, they called it kangaroo because the cramps that happen when they have this type of heat exhaustion, their arms get pulled back towards the body and uh, it resembles the arms of a kangaroo. So that's why it happens. Sometimes you would get home and you can't even take your boots off. Your foot locks up, it doesn't come off. My wife would try to help me. And if you try move, well, better to leave it alone. I've spent like four or five days you spend in pain. And Jose's experiences aren't unusual. I spoke to a worker there right after he left work and uh, he told me, oh no, today we had two kangaroos. They vomited all the way back from the sugarcane field. So it's something that happens often enough that it's not treated seriously at all. It's not something that they, they even look at anymore. Yes, I witnessed one case where someone died, a friend of mine. He left three little kids and his wife. I saw it, really. We went to see it. This guy, his body on the floor, I saw it. I've always loved to work a lot. But I'll tell you this, kangaroo kills workers. In Brazil, conditions like these in the sugarcane industry have long been a scandal, a major concern for human rights groups and pursued by some government inspectors. In some places, they have met the Brazilian legal definition of slavery, even if the workers are technically paid a small wage. But Fabio was in Alagoas for a slightly different reason, to explore whether there was a connection between conditions for people like José and global attempts to transition to renewable energy. The possible connecting factor being a product of sugarcane, ethanol. I was 
previously working on slavery stories only. And uh, I decided that I would look into ethanol production because I always knew that there was a lot of slavery in the ethanol business. And uh, I also knew that ethanol is a green fuel that is supposed to be helping people avoid climate change or decrease the severity of climate change. Ethanol is considered a green fuel because it can be added to gasoline, allowing vehicles to use less fossil fuels. In Brazil, there are vehicles that run entirely on ethanol. And ethanol-enriched gasoline is a major part of the global strategy to reduce carbon emissions and transition away from fossil fuels. Every litre of gasoline has some ethanol mixed in it. And it's not just in Brazil, it's the same for other countries. Most countries have a small percentage of ethanol mixed in just to keep uh, things a little bit greener. So it's something that is already feeding cars all over the globe. Brazil is the world's second largest producer of ethanol, producing just under 8 billion gallons in 2020. So if you're listening to this podcast while driving in the US, there's almost certainly already ethanol in your tank right now. Some of it possibly cut by hand by men like José. So basically the slaves here in Brazil are making cars run cleaner in the US. Could you explain your first journey out to the plantations? Yeah, it's kind of impressive because uh, you take the car and it's just an endless field of sugarcane. It's like completely endless. You're driving at 100 kilometers an hour and uh, you just keep seeing sugarcane for like 30 minutes. It's insane how much sugarcane there is there. And uh, every once in a while, you run into the sugar mills and you can smell a very distinct smell what they called vinhaça. Vinhaça is basically a liquid that is produced when you crush the sugarcane to produce ethanol or to produce sugar. And vinhaça used to be just a pollutant, but uh, sugarcane producers managed to find a way to use vinhaça as a fertilizer for the sugarcane. But the side effect is the smell of vinhaça is all over the place. When it comes to the actual work that people do and, and the, the cutting of the sugarcane, can you describe what that involves and what protections they do have, if any? Yeah, so on the first day, we watched as workers were tilling the field to plant sugarcane and another group of workers cutting the sugarcane. You see the workers in uh, line just hacking away at the sugarcane, at the base of the sugarcane, and then throwing them aside. And it's a very mechanical work. They look like machines while they are doing it. If you're hacking away at the ground all the time with a very sharp machete, the chance you're going to hit your leg or your feet is very high. And it used to be that sugarcane workers would get very hurt while they were doing this because they have no protection. Nowadays, most places that are employing slaves, obviously, use those protections. Most of them at least have is a kind of protector for their legs. 
In footage from Fabio's reporting trip, you can see the workers in the fields, some of them wearing boots that cover their lower legs, like shin guards for sports. And the protection that they have from the sun usually is no more than a hat. I'm not very careful about my well-being. I just forgot to put sunscreen on my face. I was completely burned. And I think I stayed there for like one hour, an hour and a half. The guys were staying there a full day doing that. Their skin is darker than mine. They can take more sun than my white, white skin can. But uh, it's not enough for protection, what they have right at that place. Aside from dangers like the burning sun and kangaroo seizures, there are other risks that these workers face. If you ever see a worker working in the sugarcane plantation, you see that he's bending down a lot. You have to pick up the sugarcane that you cut and you have to put it in a certain place. And by doing that, you are basically screwing up your back in a permanent way. So in a very short time, their backs are not fully okay anymore. And since the movements are so repetitive, like bending down, doing the strike with, with your arm, and you soon get tendonitis and other stuff like that, and uh, something that will make it impossible for you to work. guy that I interviewed, he has, uh, I don't know how to say in English, hernias, in uh, several hernias. Yeah, we would his, say that in English, yeah. Yeah, he has had several hernias on his back, and he was still working despite that. The work itself is absolutely backbreaking. It's like the definition of it because it literally breaks your back. Even within the plantations, not all workers are treated equally. The sugarcane plantation that I did go to was one that was by the side of the road. And later I spoke to a middle manager at a sugarcane plantation and he told me that a strategy that they have is to put workers in very good conditions by the side of the road. That's because the roadside positions are the most likely to get checked by labour inspectors, so they treat people better there. The other workers, the subcontractors, they're actually put into harder-to-reach places. So that's where the abuses are most common. And it's not like uh, it's a picnic by the side of the road. It's, It's very grueling conditions. What we're talking about is referred to as modern-day slavery, but there's a history of slavery in Brazil as well. And the regions where the sugarcane is at the moment, those regions are, you know, where historically there has been slavery. Is that something that you think is relevant? Is it something that is connected in any way? Sure, historically, it's connected. Because whenever there's worker rescued from slavery there is a large number of black workers rescued from slavery. So the link is there. But the more prevalent link is geographic because Brazil is divided by very poor north and northeast and a little more affluent south and southeast Brazil. So it's not so much about color, it's more about geography. But what I can tell you is that Sugarcane has been harvested in Alagoas state for centuries. So there is some link to the historical slavery here in Brazil, especially because it's not long since we ended slavery. Uh, We ended slavery in the very late uh, 19th century. So it's not that far removed from our lives. 
This history of slavery and sugarcane also has an impact on how Brazil defines slavery today. What happens here in Brazil is that we created a very specific legal definition of what constitutes slavery. And it's looking beyond just forced labor. So we decided here in Brazil that excessive hours that can put someone's life at risk or keeping workers in degrading conditions can be considered a form of slavery. And uh, usually when we find slaves here in Brazil, we find them because they are in degrading conditions. When a worker is reduced or is treated as something less than a human. What I mean by that is that when a worker is kept in a situation where he has no access to a bathroom or no access to clean water, stuff like that, they are being treated more like objects or animals than as humans. I was doing a story on... Venezuelan migrants being abused here in Brazil. And uh, I have a lot of sources among the labor inspectors. And I heard from one of those sources that in Minas Gerais state, there was a labor inspector that had rescued some Venezuelan workers from severe life conditions. So I decided to call this labor inspector. So I just started asking what he was doing. I said, oh, I'm a little bit busy. There's this huge rescue I'm just doing right now. A rescue meaning a government rescue of workers held under conditions amounting to slavery. When they say huge rescue, I know it's usually at least 20 or more workers. That's what constitutes huge. So I asked him what company was involved in this. And he told me that he couldn't tell me. It was because he had made a deal with the company that uh, he wouldn't talk to the press about the rescue and the company would then give the workers better compensation for the damages that they suffered while they were working for the company. But Fabio's not an easy man to put off the scent. So what I don't think uh, he knew is that whenever labor inspectors have a rescue, they need to file a report. And that report gets sent to the Ministry of the Economy. And the Ministry of the Economy has a open system for filing documents. And usually I take a look at this system just to see what's getting filed. So when I saw that he was doing this rescue, I decided to take a look to see where he was filing from. And uh, so I, a few weeks later, when, uh, when I had some time and I knew that he had probably filed his report by then, I just entered into the system and I saw that he had filed a report from the city of Delta in Minas Gerais. So Delta is a very unusual name for a city to have because it's not a Brazilian name, Delta. So I just put Delta into Google and uh, Delta Minas Gerais and uh, I discovered that the city of Delta has a huge company, a sugarcane company, also called Delta. So I knew it was very likely to be this uh, Delta company that I was looking into. I have to say, the story, the way you're describing it, it is like it's real old school, traditional investigative journalism. 
It's impressive how much work and knowledge has to go into that. It's like pulling a piece of string, you know? Yeah, no. So I decided to look into the company and I very quickly found out that this was a company that had received funds from the IFC and uh, had links abroad. The IFC, that's the International Finance Corporation, part of the World Bank. So, okay, so this is a story. Did you worry about your own safety when you went to go and cover this story? Uh, I didn't think I was in any danger, but I, I did go through a weird situation. The first person that I was interviewing was the widow of a worker that died while uh, working in the sugarcane plantation. And uh, when we were arrived at the community that she was at, we drew a lot of attention because it's impossible not to. We are weird people coming in with cameras and stuff. Uh, it's hard not to call too much attention. So when we went in the house and interviewed her, we noticed that outside the house there was a guy watching us all the time. And when we got out of the house, the guy was filming us. Uh, Did you so, find out who he was? Yeah, actually. He seems to be an employee of the sugarcane company. I wouldn't say boss. I would say more like a manager. He, he is what we call a gato, which would translate to cat in English. It's a slang for a person that is tasked by the sugarcane companies to find workers to work on the fields. So their, their job is to enlist workers for the sugarcane companies. And the figure of the gato is very closely linked to slavery because the gato is the guy that transports those workers from one place to the other. So in many cases, they are considered human traffickers. And so you had somebody who's, whose role is almost a human trafficker you had that person filming you when you went down to do this report yeah 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 so that was happening i didn't feel like it was dangerous to me but i felt like it could be dangerous for the widow but okay i, I think they were just making sure that she was properly intimidated because obviously if she starts to complain and try to fight for her rights because her husband is dead that could cost the company money and they don't want that. So we got in our car and we left the community and we noticed that he was following us with his car. So that started scaring us a little, but uh, he, he stopped following us when we left the place entirely. When we're talking about, you know, the experience that you've had trying to do this investigation, it wasn't easy. You know, your sources have been intimidated, but... Do you think that on the whole, these investigations are successful? Do you think that conditions are getting better? Uh, no, I think the conditions are getting worse. I'll explain why. Because in the early 2000s, uh, labor inspectors were going hard against sugarcane plantations. They were like going all the time and rescuing workers all the time in sugarcane plantations. And actually, that drove down the number of, of rescues because obviously the companies started taking better care of workers. But conditions started worsening in 2017. Now they are picking up more slaves in sugarcane plantations than they used to. Fabio's investigations into the global demand for Brazilian ethanol has been revealing. 
He accessed a list of Brazilian ethanol producers who have been investigated for slavery. And that list includes companies that take part in green energy projects in the US and EU. And I found out that Delta was on that list. So Delta was allowed for a period of time to ship ethanol to the US while keeping the workers in slavery-like conditions. According to Fabio's investigation, Delta's ethanol exports made it to the US between 2011 and 2013. Delta has responded to these charges. They released a statement that includes a pledge that they, quote, do not tolerate the conduct of service providers or suppliers that promote the restriction of fundamental rights and guarantees of any citizen, particularly in work analogous to slavery. They also promise to review their procedures and guidelines so that such events do not happen again. And finally, there is this one other aspect to the story, which is the certificates that some ethanol companies get to ship ethanol to the European Union. These certificates are supposed to be the official stamp of approval for ethanol suppliers, ensuring Europe only buys from suppliers who follow environmental rules and are not involved in slavery. A company called Bon Sucro is supposed to set these guidelines and rules and oversee the inspection process. But Fabio's reporting has shown that worker safety and conditions were not considered a high priority, or sometimes not checked at all. The European Commission has been warned that they were accepting ethanol from a company that was not checking for any labor abuses at all. The best word is cynical, because just said that, oh, no, we are looking at environmental standards, not labor standards. That should be left to national authorities. So, you know, in terms of a future and, and the price that's being paid for cleaner energy, that response implies that there's absolutely no kind of importance given to those workers and their lives. Yes, I think it's the easiest thing to do is to not care and just say, oh, we are going to do better, uh, which, which is like the standard uh, answer that we, we always get on any story about labor abuse. Oh, no, we are going to improve our practices. We are going to do better. And uh, OK, in the end, my story is not going to like cost them money enough for them to change their ways. Not really. I don't think they'll have an impact as big as that. In response to Fabio's work, Bon Sucro, the company responsible for vetting sugar producers, released an official statement promising to improve monitoring of working conditions. The statement reads in part, Our certification protocol is currently being strengthened to ensure that elements on labour are carefully considered and that all relevant stakeholders will be consulted by the certification auditors. Bon Sucro has a zero tolerance of forced labour. And the IFC, part of the World Bank, they also responded and promised that... IFC takes the allegations seriously, and we understand the company immediately implemented corrective and remedial actions for the workers contracted by the third party and discontinued its services. As the world rushes towards using more and more sustainable energy, the question is, can something be sustainable when the people who make it are treated like slaves? 
Does our need to manage climate change trump our right to a safe and fair workplace? What do you think it would take to have a bigger impact if this is going on, if people are, are working in these terrible conditions, doing this backbreaking work? What then do you think needs to come afterward in order to make things better for those workers? You can't call something sustainable just because it is not hurting the environment. If it's hurting workers, it can't be considered sustainable. And this is hurting workers a lot. So what needs to be done is to stop classifying ethanol as sustainable. Because if you treat it as a part of a solution, you're not going to solve its problems. Jose Cicero, what do you think is going to happen with him now? What's it, what does his future look like? I'm trying, I'm begging, please. I'm looking for, I'm looking for a silver lining. Help me. I, I, I'm not a silver lining guy. Uh, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the case of José Cicero, he's retired. He managed to get some money in. He has his life. He raised his children. So he suffered a lot, but I think he's at least resting now. Uh, I worry a lot more about the workers that are still working now are looking at the future where they won't know what to do and uh, have no employment after their bodies are wrecked by the job that they are doing. Uh, and uh, about the next generation, I think the conditions are going to get even worse for them. I think if we want to have better future for them, we need to create alternatives because this sustainable job of harvesting sugarcane is not sustainable at all. It's something that uh, it's basically destroying people's lives in the long run. That's all for this edition of Just Transition, silver lining or not. And you can read Fabio's work on Brazil's sugarcane industry at our website, Google Thomson Reuters Foundation. Just Transition is made by Antica Productions and Context, a news platform powered by the Thomson Reuters Foundation. This episode was produced by Leo Hornack. Our associate producers are Abby Raheja and Paula Santana. Sound design by Reza Dyer. Legal help from Melissa Tesla and Mershad Anwar. Our executive producer is Kathleen Goldar. The president of Antica Productions is Stuart Cox. Our context team includes Just Transition editor Megan Rowling and editor-in-chief Yasser Khan. The CEO of the Thomson Reuters Foundation is Antonio Zapula.